Well, tonight we begin a series, a midweek series on the Word. And this series is based on Psalm 119, which just happens to be the longest chapter in the Bible. It clocks in at 176 verses. So this will obviously not be a verse-by-verse study. Studying one, one verse a week would take us a little more than three years. Even studying one section a week would take us a little more than five months. So in this series, which isn't all that long, we're just going to take a, a bird's eye view of Psalm 119. But if you begin today and you read eight verses, which is one section of this psalm, and you read eight verses every day, you will finish on the day that we finish this midweek series. And I guarantee and promise it will be a blessing to you if you do that. It is a common misconception that David wrote the entire book of Psalms. He didn't write the entire book of Psalms, but he did write half of these poetic songs. David is specifically noted as the author of 73 of the Psalms in their titles in your Bible. And the New Testament mentions him as the author of two more uh, Acts 4 mentions him as the author of Psalm 2. Uh, Hebrews 4 mentions him as the author of Psalm 94. So that gives us a grand total of 75 psalms, or exactly half of this book, that were penned by David. 13 of his psalms share details about when they were written, what was going on in his life, and they share that in their titles. So it's, it's quite a collection. But the other half of this book was written by other people. Two psalms are attributed to Solomon, one to Moses, one to Heman, one to Ethan the Ezraite, uh, 11 to the sons of Korah, which is quite a story in itself, and 12 to the family of Asaph, who was the choir director uh, during the reign of David. With the exception of Moses and Solomon, most of these additional authors were either priests or Levites who were responsible to provide music for worship in the sanctuary during David's reign. And that's why many of the Psalms have musical directions in their titles. It will say something you'll see in your Bible. It'll say, to the chief musician or something similar. And that's why the Psalms has always been uh, referred to as the hymn book, uh, the prayer book, the praise book of ancient Israel. The earliest psalm that we can figure out is this psalm written by Moses. It's Psalm 90. It would be the earliest psalm in the collection. And the last one added to the collection is most likely Psalm 137, which was a song of lament written long after David's lifetime when the Jews were captives in Babylon. And most of you can quote at least the first verse because of a song you heard that starts by the rivers of Babylon, and you can at least quote one verse. And so that's the book of Psalms. It was written over a thousand years, over a millennia, and it was assembled mostly by David, who when he died, he was referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. But almost one-third of the Psalms, 47 of them, were penned by anonymous individuals. And Psalm 119, the longest chapter in your Bible, the longest psalm in the collection, 
it's one of these anonymous songs. But that doesn't stop us from appreciating its beauty and its power. The only thing you really need to know about Psalm 119 is that it's in the Word and it's part of the Word. And if it's the Word, it has power and anointing and authority and blessing and instruction. Now, whoever this author was, he's a good example for us to follow. Because this man who wrote this psalm, whoever he was and whenever he wrote, he has a profound appreciation and a passionate desire for the Word of God. He addresses his words all throughout 176 verses. He addresses his words directly to the Lord in a combination of praise and prayer. And when he gets frustrated, he speaks about the proud, arrogant people who disdain him, who persecute him because they don't love the Word of God. They don't obey the Word of God, but he does. And he's so thankful for the Word. Even the structure of this psalm is absolutely amazing. Due to the organization of the author and the inspiration of God. You've probably noticed this in your Bible. If you've got a King James Bible and a few of the other translations do the same thing. Um, this psalm is written like an acrostic poem. It has eight lines, or we would say eight verses, in each of the 22 sections of this psalm. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And the 22 sections of this psalm, of Psalm 119, its 22 sections follow the pattern of the Hebrew alphabet. Each of the eight lines in each section begin with the same letter of the alphabet. So verses 1 to 8, they begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The next eight verses begin with Bet, the next eight with Gimel, and then Dalit, and then uh, Hey, and Vav, and so on. For 22 sections, 22 letters, each of the verses or each of the lines in this beautiful psalm begin with that letter. It's, it's really quite an impressive structure. It's beautiful just to look at. And so I copied this psalm in English and in Hebrew uh, into a little bit of a spreadsheet and made a, a little video for you to see. Now remember that English reads from your left to your right, but Hebrew reads from right to left. And these letters, so you'll see in the middle, you'll see the first letter of each of these lines, each of these verses it begins with the same letter. There's little vowel markings under Hebrew letters, but it's the same letter, and it's really quite beautiful to see. So uh, on the screen, if you would just keep your eye on the yellow line that you'll see appear, and that's going to trace the Hebrew letters, and you'll see that each one of these sections, there's the first letter, Aleph, and then you go to Bet and Gimel and Ons. And every one of the, the verses in that section begins with that letter. It's really quite a remarkable structure. 
there's probably 20 similar pieces in the Word of God. The book of uh, Lamentations is similar. It's got a structure where the first letters of, uh, of verses begin with letters in order. But this is the longest, and to me, this is the most beautiful. It, it's the Hebrew alphabet, the language that first revealed the plan of God to man, and it's just laid out beautifully, 22 sections, 22 letters, and I think that is absolutely remarkable. Now, the emphasis in this longest chapter in the Bible is on the ministry of the Word of God in the life of God's people. This is a powerful chapter of God's Word. This chapter, this psalm, describes how the Word enables us to grow in holiness and in our obedience. This psalm tells us how the word can help us handle the pressures and the persecutions that always accompany a true walk of faith. Nearly every verse in this chapter contains a direct mention of the word of God. So Psalm 119 is literally the word talking about the Word. That's why it's so powerful. And this writer uses at least eight different words to describe the power of the Word of God. He calls it the law. The Hebrew word is Torah. And that's a body of prophetic revelation and teaching. It's not just teaching. It's not just law. But it has a purpose to reveal God to us. He calls it the commandments or the, the mitzvah. And these are the conditions of the covenant, the commandments of God. If you want to be in covenant with God, you've got to keep his commandments. He calls the word the judgments. That's mishpat. And that's God's righteous pronouncements. Like a judge would sit uh, in a courtroom and he would declare the judgment on the accused or he would declare someone innocent. When God pronounces a judgment in his word, that's something you need to reckon with. He calls it the testimonies. And the testimonies, that's a wonderful way to describe the Word of God because these are commands, but they're commands based on God's character. So God commands us to be holy because He is holy. He commands us to love because God is love, and etc. He calls this, uh, the Word, He calls it the precepts. And uh, that is instructions about human conduct, how we should treat each other. That's part of what the Word of God does. And he calls it the statutes. And I, I love this descriptive word that the Word uses about itself. It's the statutes because statutes are principles that go beyond just the letter of the law. Jesus did this. You remember the law says, don't kill. And Jesus said, oh, wait, here's a, a statute for you. Here's a, a principle that goes beyond the letter of the law. It's not just don't kill. It's don't hate somebody in your heart. Because if you hate them in your heart, it's the same as if you wanted to murder them. It's equivalent to murder. So that's a statute. And then the word describes itself as the way. It's a road. It's a path. 
And for those of you that have been serving Jesus for a few years, you already know this, that the Word leads you and the Word guides you. And you walk with Jesus as you walk with His Word. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And finally, of course, the Word just describes itself many times using the Hebrew word, the bar. It's Word. This is a direct utterance of God. And the Bible tells us about itself that this is God-breathed, that holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I don't care what voices you hear from what sphere of education or what sphere of criticism, what sphere of politics or any other thing in this world. You can trust the Word of God. This is the Word that God gave us. Now, you might think that with all that emphasis on laws and commandments and judgments and statutes and, oh my goodness, you might think that that would make Psalm 119 a very heavy book, kind of a negative book, but it's actually the opposite. The psalmist loves the Word of God. He exclaims in verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. He delights in the law. He rejoices in God's commandments. And he enjoys telling all of us about it. He couldn't get stopped. He was the first long-winded preacher. 176 verses. It's amazing. He even turns God's statutes into songs. He says in verse 54, Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. He said your laws, your commandments, your statutes, your precepts, they're like a song to me, God. Imagine if a local orchestra maybe at one of the high schools, took our traffic regulations and set them all to music. Stop on red, you know, and it wouldn't be very inspiring because most of us don't consider laws to be a source of any kind of joyful song. But that is exactly the way this writer looks at the Word of God. Your law is like a symphony to me. Your law is a joyful song that I can sing every day that I live. You see, Christians don't read the Bible as a textbook or a law book. We read this as a love letter. That's how we read the Word of God. And because we love the Lord, we love His law. Because we know Him as our loving Heavenly Father, we joyfully obey His commandments. We don't make any bones about it. If God says it, we want to do it because we love pleasing God. We, we studied this when we went through John's writings. John said, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. That is the attitude of this writer. We don't know who he was. We don't know when he lived. We don't know the circumstances of his life. But when he set his pen to parchment, he just went on and on and on saying the word of God, the law of God, the commandments of God, they're like my song. I rejoice in them. They bless my life. They don't burden me. They don't bother me. I rejoice in the commandments of God. And that's pretty remarkable 
when you consider that this anonymous psalmist, he didn't even have a complete Old Testament, let alone a complete Bible. All he had was up to the Psalms. All he had was the Torah and maybe a few historical books, and we don't know when he wrote. He might have had a couple of poetical books, maybe not. He didn't even have a complete Old Testament, let alone a complete Bible, and yet he said, oh, this word of God, it's like a song in my heart. It blesses me, it helps me, and it leads me. How many Christians, and even some pastors today, basically ignore the Old Testament, except for a few of its popular stories. But here's a man who writes this longest chapter in your Bible. Here's a man who rejoices in the Old Testament scriptures. That's the only word of God he had. Reminds me of a story I heard from one of our missionaries that um, they, they came across a preacher, a pastor in one of the mission fields. And he had a, a Bible and it had been ripped apart. And you could see it was all tattered and torn. And it started with the Gospel of John, just a page, because he'd ripped it in half. And they said, you need to respect the Bible more. You need to be careful of your Bible. He said, oh, no. Brother missionary, he said, I have a brother who's also a pastor and he didn't have a Bible. So I tore my Bible in half and I gave him three gospels and the Old Testament and I've got the gospel of John and the rest. Do you understand that when you've got Bibles stacked up at your house and on your electronic devices and you can look them up on Kindle or Google or Wikipedia or whatever, do you understand how blessed we are? We are surrounded by the Word of God. And we best appreciate it like this Old Testament psalmist did. This man loved the Bible. It was the only Word of God he had. His love for the word puts many modern Christians to shame. If this writer, with his limited revelation and limited resources, if he could live godly and victorious, feeding only on a portion of the Old Testament, how much more should we be able to live in victory? How much more should we have deep abiding joy today? How much we should be able to just live for the Lord and not just survive, but thrive. Not just tough it out, but rise above everything that the enemy throws against us. Until the books of the New Testament were written and then distributed sometime in the latter first century, do you realize that the Old Testament scriptures were the only word of God possessed by the early church? They didn't have all the epistles like you do. They didn't have the book of Acts like you do. They didn't have all four Gospels. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have any of that. The only Bible that the New Testament church started with was the Old Testament. Yet with only the Old Testament and the help of the Holy Ghost, those early Christians were able to minister and they were able to win the lost in a dynamic way. 
Peter quoted the Old Testament prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost. That's how he explained the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He quoted the book of Psalms to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Stephen stood accused before the Jewish council, do you know what he did in his little address? He opened with Genesis, he closed with Isaiah, and somewhere in the middle he referenced Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Amos. He preached to them using only the Old Testament. Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch about baptism in Jesus' name. And all he used was a few verses from the middle of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He didn't have Acts 2.38. That hadn't been written down yet. He didn't have all Paul's epistles. He didn't have any of that. But he was able to say, there's something that you need. And he explained it from the Old Testament. James concluded the Jerusalem Council of the Churches by quoting the prophet Amos. Paul even quoted one Old Testament verse about oxen. To teach churches, you need to support your spiritual leaders financially. So in their theology and in their decisions and in their ministry, the early church depended on guidance from the Old Testament Scriptures. I've got to tell you that the further we go, into the 21st century, the less that is the case. Many believers today are guilty of totally ignoring the Old Testament except for reading a few favorite passages. And that's why so many believers in so many churches today are totally ignorant of what the law of God teaches. And they say things that are sound good, but they're absolutely wrong. They say things like, keeping the law can't save me. They just twisted Romans 3.20 into a pretzel. But this psalmist would respond, oh, I know keeping the law can't save me. But listen, keeping the law can sanctify me. It can make me holy. It can tell me how I need to live to please God. People today say, well, the law, that's bondage. They just twisted Galatians 5 and 1. But this psalmist would declare, oh no, the law of God is my freedom. The law of God is my liberty. People today say, oh, the law, that's just darkness. That's just shadow. They're twisting Hebrews 10 and verse 1. But this psalmist insists, no, never. The law is not darkness. The law of God is light to me. It leads me. It shows me the way. People today say, oh, the law, that Old Testament, it's death. They're twisting Romans 7 and 11 and other verses. But this psalmist would say, absolutely not. The law of the ever-living God is not death. This law is life. But many Christians and many churches and even many pastors today don't understand that. You see, to sinners, the law of God is an enemy because it condemns their sin. To carnal Christians, the law is looked on as some kind of harsh taskmaster that robs them of their freedom. But to apostolic believers, the law is a servant that leads us to Christ and helps us see the will and the ways of God.
The Old Testament psalmist, we don't know his name, but whoever he was, the guy that penned this longest chapter in your Bible, the longest psalm in the collection of 150, he wasn't satisfied to have the law of God in his home or in his hand or even in his head. He said, I've got to hide your word in my heart. I've got to get it way down inside of me. He wanted it. He wanted the law, the commandments of God, the word of God, so he could love what was holy and do what was right. The way we love and obey the word of God reveals the way we love and obey the God of the word. You can't separate God from his word. So tonight we're going to begin our study of Psalm 119. But in doing so, we want to look far beyond the borders in this first uh, message, in this first lesson. We want to look far beyond the borders of a single psalm about the Word because I want to establish in your mind and in your heart the absolute power and the absolute authority of the Word of God. The Bible that you read, the Bible that you carry, the Bible that you hold, it is not just the world's best-selling book. The Bible is a supernatural book. It is a miraculous book. If you get the Word of God into your heart, it will change your life. It will alter your eternity. It will do for you what nothing else on this planet can do. And the witness is everywhere in the Word of God. Moses said to Israel when recounting their history, he said, God humbled Israel. He suffered you to hunger, and he fed you with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know. God allowed you to wander in the wilderness and gave you the same menu every day for 40 years. God didn't give you what you wanted. He gave you what you needed. And he was teaching you a lesson every day for 40 years that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. That's how we live. Let me tell you something. I know you need nourishment to survive physically, but you need this nourishment to survive spiritually. Don't think you're going to survive being an apostolic believer without a relationship with the word of God. The word is your light. The word is your rock. The word is your source. The word is your food. The word will sustain you when trials press in on you. Moses said, God taught you something in the wilderness, Israel. He taught you that you don't just live by bread. You live by the words that come from the mouth of God. Solomon said these words. He said, blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. This is beautiful. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. That's an Old Testament king talking to an Old Testament people about the Old Testament Bible that they had up to that point. I got one better. I've got a whole New Testament, and my testimony is still the same. Not one. One word of the word of God has ever let me down or failed me. It's never messed me up. It's helped me up. It's never pushed me down. It's brought me out. The word of God has never failed. 
King David wrote these words. He said, in God will I praise His Word. Now, we don't normally say that. We say praise the Lord or praise His name or praise Jesus. David said, I'm going to praise His Word. I'm going to brag on the Word of the Lord for a little while. I like some of our old-time elder Christians because they love this Word so much. Their Bibles are tattered and worn. But you know, a tattered Bible, a Bible that's all kind of messed up, it usually belongs to a person whose life is not messed up because they've been in that Word and they've got that Word into them. So David said, in God will I praise His Word. And in case you missed it, in the Lord will I praise his word. David, why are you bragging about the word of God? He said, here's why. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man shall do unto me. Guess what? You got a bulletproof vest right there. The word of God sustains you. And when the fiery darts of the enemy come, it's the word that will repel them. When the attacks of trials and tribulations come you can get a word from the word and you can stand strong and if there's anybody that's ever done that I wish you'd do what David did and just thank God for his word in the sanctuary tonight this church isn't built on a handbook or on a church council or on a Pentecostal policy we are built on the word of the Lord <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. David wrote these words. He said, I will worship toward thy holy temple, and I will praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. So far, so good. We would expect him to say that. And then he gives us the punchline. We probably wouldn't be expecting this. He says, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Stop the presses right there. What in the world does that mean? God, you've magnified. We know how great the name of the Lord is. But the Bible says about itself, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. What in the world is that about? Well, three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, you will receive whatsoever you shall ask in my name. He says that in John 14, 15, and 16. Three times he says, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, you'll receive it. So in other words, Jesus is explaining that his name, it gives us authority to ask for whatever we want. His name gives us the authority to bind some things and to loose other things, all using the authority of his name. Anybody believe that? That didn't sound very convincing to me. Anybody believe that when you ask in the name of the Lord, he hears and his word says he'll answer? Anybody believe that? So does that mean you can ask, Jesus for anything? Like anything? <clears throat> I've told you the story before, but it just struck me so funny at the time. I was an assistant pastor. This lady came and she talked to the pastor. She said, <clears throat> Pastor, please pray with me this week. I'm praying about whether to uh, stay with my husband or move in with my boyfriend. 
You can ask anything in his name. Well, I don't like the husband I got. I'd like her husband. I don't like the wife I got. I'd like his wife. Jesus in your name. You can ask anything in his name? Absolutely not. You know why? Because the word outweighs the name. The word is magnified above the name. It's the word that reveals the name. So if what you are asking for and what you are praying for doesn't line up with the word of God, you can ask Jesus until you're blue in the face, but you're not going to get that prayer answered. Why? Because God always honors his word so much so that he has magnified his word above all his name. You read the Bible, you'll find out God has a lot of phenomenal names. He's the Lord, our healer. He's the Lord, our our banner. He's the Lord, our shepherd. He's got all kinds of names, but his word has been magnified above all his name. That's why you need to know the word. That's why you need to love the word. That's why you need to have a relationship with the word of God. It was Jesus himself who told those disciples, he said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not just the people that use my name. He said, it will be the people that do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Now, here's what Jesus said. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. And, and don't you know, in your name, we cast out devils. And in your name, we did many wonderful works. We did all kinds of great stuff, Jesus. And we put your name on all of it. And we did it in your name. And Jesus said, and on that day, I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, there's a frightening little passage of Scripture. Jesus said, not Pastor Raymond, Jesus said that it's not claiming him as Lord or just using his name that's going to get you into heaven. Anybody can say, Jesus is my Lord. Anybody can use his name. But Jesus said, no, it's the people that do the will of God. And where is the will of God found? The will of God is found in the word of God. And that's what gets you into heaven. Those that do the will of God. And again, I say to you, you need a relationship with the Word of God. And that's why, to me, Psalm 119 is so beautiful and so powerful. More than any other chapter in the Bible, it is literally the Word talking about the Word. Now, if you've read it, you've got some favorite verses. If you've been reading for a while in the scripture, you probably can quote some of these verses. But here are some of my favorite verses. They might not be your favorites, but they gave me the microphone. So these are my favorite verses, some of them. Verse 11, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Verse 16, I will not forget thy word. Verse 25, quicken thou me according to thy word. Verse 28, strengthen thou me according to thy word. Verse 42, I trust in thy word. 
you know, on the staff, Pastor Jack is the eternal optimist. The rest of the staff are somewhere in the middle. I'm the eternal pessimist. I can see disaster coming. I can snatch defeat out of certain victory every single time. I don't trust in a lot of stuff. I've seen too many fly-by-night operations and too many deceptive, warped, twisted people. But I trust in his word. I don't trust everything and everybody, but I trust in his word. Verse 58, be merciful unto me according to thy word. Verse 74, I have hoped in thy word. Verse 89, you know this one. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And you know this one, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and it's a light unto my path. That's what you need to do with the word of God. You don't need to figure out six weeks from Sunday or two years from Wednesday. You just need to walk in the light that the word has given you thus far, and when you get to the end of that, it works like the headlights on your car. You drive as far as you can see, and when you get to the point where the light was, there'll be more light ahead of you. That's the word of God. It's a light. It's it's a a lamp and you just follow along and obey it and God will give you more revelation. 116 uphold me according to thy word. Keep me together Jesus. Hold me together. I'm falling apart but your word can keep me. I love this verse. It's probably one of my favorites in the Old Testament. Psalm 119 verse 133. Order my steps in thy word. My goodness, if God can just help me to negotiate and walk in his word, there's nothing the devil or the world or anything else can throw at me that I can't get through. Psalm 119, verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning. Verse 161, my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice in thy word. Verse 162, verse 169, give me understanding according to thy word. Verse 170, deliver me according to thy word. In 172, and I'll quit because I could go on. I could read all 176 verses. They're all good. My tongue shall speak of thy word. God, I'm going to be like old King David. I'm going to brag on your word. I'm going to thank you for your word. I'm going to worship because of your word. And it's everywhere in the Bible, folks. The Bible has a lot to say about itself. Please hear Pastor Raymond tonight. You need a relationship, not just with the wonderful pastors, not just with our wonderful church family. You need a relationship with the Word of God for yourself. You don't have to have a degree in Hebrew and Greek. You don't have to know everything about prophecy and eschatology and soteriology and pneumatology. I know all those words, but you don't have to know any of those words. The theologians have a 17-syllable word for everything simple in the Word of God. You don't need to know any of that. Start somewhere that's easy. Start in one of the Gospels. Start in the book of Acts. Start in the book of Psalms. And just read and make it your prayer. You don't have to read chapter after chapter after chapter. I'd rather you read five verses and get something out of it than read 15 chapters and not even remember a word that you said. But... 
You need to pray before you read and say, God, show me something from your word today. God, give me strength from your word today. And he'll do it for you. Isaiah said this, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, Pentecostal preachers are notorious for this, that they like to preach and they like to have people swinging from the chandeliers when they preach. They love response. And I don't know why they took all the chandeliers out of here because it's really inhibiting this service tonight. (laughs) There's nothing to swing off of. Pentecostal preachers are probably about the worst in the world for that, preaching, and they love that response in the people of God. And you've been there. I sit in audiences a lot, and they're always baiting us. You know, anybody got a Baptist nod and a Presbyterian cough and a Catholic burp? and a, they, they just bait us all the time. It's awful. And I don't think the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Catholics really appreciate it. <laughs> Pentecostal preachers are the worst in the world. But here's what I've come to understand in all these years of teaching and preaching the Word of God. The Word doesn't return void. You can preach the word of God almost in a vacuum and somebody will hear it maybe five weeks from now and it'll be exactly the word that they needed and it will turn their life inside out and upside down in a good way. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, that text came to me and it said, Pastor Raymond, Pastor Jack, Pastor somebody, that was exactly what I needed for this moment in my life. You see, God said, my word, it won't return void. If you preach the word. You can preach about yourself. It's not going to do much. You can tell stories about our church. It probably won't accomplish a lot. But if you preach the word, the word doesn't return void. It's like a guided missile. It'll follow you all this week. It'll follow you in the next week. And about six weeks from now, when you're in the middle of a trial and you feel like giving up, boom! The word of God will land in your spirit because it will not return void. My goodness, Jeremiah, they, they threw him in a pit. He sunk up to his armpits in mud. That's in the Bible. It's kind of gross. And he didn't know if he was ever going to get out. And Jeremiah wanted them to stop persecuting him. And so he said this, and he wrote it down. He said, okay, I'll make a deal. I will not make mention of God. I will not speak anymore in his name. I am tired of the grief and the persecution. I am sick to death of all the opposition. So I'll just zip my lip and I will keep quiet. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And just as I got weary of persecution, all of a sudden I got weary of being quiet. I got weary of forbearing and I couldn't stay. I couldn't keep quiet and I just started preaching all over again. You know every once in a while the devil tries to push you down and knock you down and drag you back to your old life and every 
every once in a while you just think to yourself, you can be honest, it's church. You think, I just might as well give up. This isn't working. I don't know if I'm doing this right. And some of you, the thought has entered into your little brain and you've said, I might as well go back to the world. I might as well just shut up and sit down and give up. Not so, my brother. Not so, my sister. Anytime you feel like that, you need to get into the Word because the Word is like a fire. Shut up in your bones. It'll light a fire in you that makes you want to go one more day. You don't have to live for God a year at a time. Can you do it for one more day? That's all you need to answer. Can you do it for one more day? Can you live right for one more day? Can you serve God for one more day? Because he'll give you your daily bread. He'll walk with you every day. Oh my goodness, somebody lift up your hands and thank God for his word. My goodness, you need the word of God. You need to know it. You need to love it. You need to read it. You need to believe it. Another Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel. My goodness, he didn't have an easy time of it either. God set him down in the middle of a valley filled with dry bones. And God said, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said, oh, Lord God, thou knowest. I don't have a clue. And again, God said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, here's what resurrected the deadness and the dryness in Ezekiel's vision. Oh, ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I know sometimes you get in a valley and it feels dead and dry. It feels all messed up and you can't even hardly see light at the end of the tunnel or look up to touch bottom. But it's in those moments you need to do what Ezekiel did. You need to say deadness and dryness and fear and perplexity and anxiety. Hear the word of the Lord. I am more than a conqueror. I am a victor. I am a child of God. I am filled with the Holy Ghost. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Deadness and dryness and devil, hear the word of the Lord. But you can't say that if you don't know this. Oh, my goodness. Solomon wrote it in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the word of a king is. <laughs> well, we got a better king than King Solomon or King David or King Saul. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who can look at the king and say, what do you think you're doing? You see, we've got power when the world closes in. We've got power when the devil attacks. There's power in the word of a king. And we quote this verse often because it's so beautiful and powerful. The psalmist said, he sent his word and healed them. We quote that part, but the next part's just as powerful and beautiful. And God delivered them from their destructions. It wasn't the devil that messed them up. It wasn't some enemy that messed them up. They messed themselves up. 
They made the mistake. They took the wrong turn. They sinned. They rebelled. It was their destruction. But our God is so merciful and his word is so powerful. He sent his word right into the situation that they had created. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. And brothers and sisters, that's just the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You don't understand what you're holding in your hand when you carry around a Bible. It's a wonder it doesn't drain the battery on your iPad when you have a Bible program on there. The Word of God is so powerful because the Word was God, the Word is God, and the Word ever shall be God. You can't separate God from His Word. But because in the Old Testament, it was far too easy to have the Word down here and think of God up there. So God said, I'm going to do something different in the New Testament. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The reason God intersected human history, the reason God took on a body of flesh is so you could just look at Him and know what God was like. So you could just read His words and know the thoughts and the mind and the love and the mercy of God. That's why he became flesh. And so you see it everywhere in the New Testament. It's the pattern for the New Testament church. As the word grows, the church grows. As the word increases, the church increases. As the word prevails, the church prevails. That's why we have always been and we shall always be a church that is built on the Word of God. We don't back up from preaching it. We don't apologize for it. This church is built on the Word of God. Mark 16, the very last verse in his gospel account. And they went forth and they preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them. And here's what God did. He confirmed the word with signs following. And Mark says, amen. Now, I love our music. We've got anointed singers and musicians. And they work and they practice and they prepare so you can be blessed and so we can be ushered into the presence of God. And I appreciate every minute that they spend helping our church. And, and we've got wonderful pastors and wonderful leadership in this church and they work diligently on your behalf. And if that wasn't enough, we've got awesome saints in this church that have lived for God and accumulated centuries. If you put us all together, we've lived and walked with God and we've prayed and it's all wonderful. But listen, God doesn't confirm wonderful music. God doesn't confirm the ministries of pastors. God doesn't confirm the life of a saint. Here's what God confirms. He confirms his word. So we gotta know his word. We gotta believe his word. We gotta love his word. We gotta preach his word. And God help us all. We need to respond to his word. When the least little preacher gets up here and with a trembling, cracking 
teenage voice says, you know, we need to believe the word of God. The church needs to come unglued in the spirit because that young man or that young lady just said something that we agree with, that the word of God is the foundation for everything we are and everything we have and everything we believe. He confirms his word. It happens everywhere in the New Testament. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And when the word prevailed, the church prevailed. And when the word expanded, the church expanded. And the devil thought, I got a solution for this. Paul seems to be the mouthpiece for this movement. So I'm going to get him falsely accused. I'm going to get the political machine and the religious uh, people. I'm going to get them all against Paul. And I'm going to throw him in a dirty, dank, dark Roman jail. And so he did. And even when he was in prison, the apostle Paul put his trust in the word of God. Here's what he wrote from prison. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Pray that I get out. Pray that somebody puts a key in a cake and brings it to me for my birthday. That's not what he prayed. He said, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Pray that the word of the Lord keeps expanding and the word of the Lord keeps growing and the word of the Lord gets greater. I'm not so concerned about getting out of prison. I'm concerned that we still hang on to the word of the Lord. Can I just tell you a modern equivalent, not nearly so dramatic, not nearly so intense. I don't really care what life throws at me. What I care about is that the word of God is magnified through my life. I've met beautiful beautiful saints of God and they get a sickness or they go through a trial or the circumstances of life close in around them and it seems like the devil has locked them up in a jail but you know what they say don't worry about me I'm going to be just fine just let the word of God be magnified in my life if I'm sick let me be a testimony to the word of God if I've got problems let me be a testimony to the Word of God. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament. Pastors have to be pretty careful about saying this is my favorite verse because somebody always comes to you three weeks from now when you say something else is your favorite verse. I have a different favorite verse just about every day, so let me be. Paul wrote this in the last book, in the last letter he would ever write. He said, Timothy, my dear young friend, they have locked me up, chained me like an animal, and it doesn't look like I'm getting out until they take me to my sentence, my trial, and they put me to death. He said, I'm in this prison. It's not nice. It's not comfortable. Wherein I suffer trouble. They're treating me like an evildoer, Timothy. They're talking about me like I was a common criminal. Timothy, they've chained my hands and my feet. I am bound. But the word of God is not bound. 
I wish I could transplant that little verse into the innermost part of the spirit of every child of God that's part of our church. So when the trials of life come against you, you don't freak out or panic, but your attitude is this. I may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. I might be sick, but the word of God is not sick. I might be knocked down, but the word of God is not knocked down. I might have enemies, but there's no enemy that can prevail against the word of God. Let me hasten. The word of God is so powerful and it's so eternal. It outlasts everything on this earth. The writer of Hebrews said, this word of God that you hold, this Bible that you read, it is quick and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce and divide asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow. But here's what you need to know. This word is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked. And the Bible says about your heart, who can know it? So if you really want to know what's going on inside of you, don't take the, the word of your friend. Take the word of the word of God. And just let the, the word discern what's really going on in your life. Peter wrote this, the Pentecost preacher. He said, all flesh is as grass. We eventually get old. We eventually get feeble. We eventually lose our strength and we begin to wither. All the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. We are so fragile as a human race. If anything has come out of this pandemic, we've realized how fragile our world is, how fragile the human race is. But the word of God, the word of the Lord, it endureth forever. And Peter said, oh yeah, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. All you people at some precious pioneer preacher, he, he explained the gospel to you. You got baptized in Jesus' name. You're filled with the Holy Ghost. You've lived for God and walked with his word all these years. You have not been wasting your time. When we have your funeral and send you on to glory and shed our tears and try to pick up the pieces and move on, guess what? That word that you believed, that word that you live for, it endures forever. And because the word endures forever, and you obeyed the word, you're going to endure forever. Jesus said it. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And I'll close because I could go for a while. I have permission. I got 176 verses in one chapter. So I preach short tonight. Go to the far end of the scripture. Go to the closing chapters of the Word of God. Go to the great scenes in the book of Revelation and the great events unfolding in heaven and on earth. And John the Revelator writes these words. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This isn't your meek and humble, little, lowly, manger-born Jesus. No, this time his eyes were as a flame of fire. 
and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name, in the final wind-up of the Word of God, his name is called the Word of God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What are you saying, John? I, I think John's saying this. The name contains the word, and the word contains the name, and it's all one, and it's all powerful. And if you give your life to the name of Jesus and the word of God, you're going to be okay, and hell can't touch you, and hell can't even handle you. And when we get to the end, it's all going to be over. But the rejoicing in heaven for millions of years. So we begin a little series on Psalm 119 without even reading hardly anything from Psalm 119. But I just wanted you to know that this Word of God, it is inspired, it is eternal, it is dynamic, it is miraculous. It is in the Word that we meet Jesus Christ. Please hear me tonight. Our response to the Word of God is our response to Jesus. You can't respond positively to Jesus and negatively to the Word of God because the name contains the Word and the Word contains the name and it's all rolled into one. So if you say yes to the Word, you've said yes to Jesus. And if you say no to the Word, you've said no to Jesus. Last scripture. Paul wrote it. He told us how to get dressed every day. It's called the armor of God. And here's how he concludes. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I know you're busy. I know your family and your boss and your priorities and your job are calling you and pulling you in a thousand directions. But without this, you have no weapon to beat down and beat back and beat off the enemy of your soul who would like to take you down and take you out and make you one more sad statistic in the history of the Christian church. But I say no, because I've got a weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. And when I know it, and when I believe it, and most of all, when I obey it, I've got a weapon that is stronger than any attack of the devil and any trial of this life and any circumstance I find myself in. The Word isn't something to sit on your shelf and collect dust. The Word is something that you wield as a weapon and you can push the enemy out of your life. It is the Word. Because there's no other word that matters. It's not a word. It's the word. It's not my word. It's God's word. And it is eternally powerful. 
I'd like you to raise your hands right now, and I'd like you to get a little bit of Holy Ghost grit in your voice, and I would like you to pray over whatever situation it is that is causing you grief, anxiety, and concern. Maybe it's a health problem. Well, the Word says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Maybe it's a child that's wayward. Well, the Word says, thou shalt be saved and thy house. Maybe you don't know what way to go tomorrow. Well, the Word says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. They are plans to give you an expected end. So you can have confidence in the Word of God. Oh my goodness. That's really good, but it's about at 5%. It needs to be at about 105%. Just lift up that praise to God. Just lift up that prayer to God. If you can't think of anything to pray, go home, get you a scripture, and pray that. Go home, get you a verse, and pray that. It's all the word. Pray it over yourself. Pray it over your life, because the word is forever settled in heaven. In Jesus' name, would you stand and would you, as you stand, if you're with somebody in your bubble, take them by the hand.